Bala Truva. My brother went So um, they had a tradition that for the first, I think it was three months, but it could have been six, you were allowed to answer halacha questions. You were? You were. You were allowed to. After then, you should know better. Yeah, you should know that you don't really know what you're talking about. But, you know, the first few months, you, you know, you're the, you're the most religious person in your Chabad house, so you think you know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay. We are on page nine in my book. I don't know what page you are in your book because different prints with different editions. Okay, we're in chapter three. And there is a likelihood, although I do not guarantee it, that we turn the page. That we turn the page. Not even, a, not even a possibility, even a likelihood. But maybe, but um, I, I, I make no promises. Okay, fine. So we were discussing the faculties, the abilities of the godly soul, which are grouped into two categories corresponding to the two categories of the spheros, which are known by the terms in Hebrew seichel and midas. So please make me feel proud and remind me what Seichel is. Yes. The fact that we perceive reality as it is, and specifically which part of reality? The immaterial part of the immaterial part of reality. The fact the fact that we literally perceive immaterial reality as it actually is. Okay. Now, what would happen if you just used your seichel in an unrestricted fashion? You would end up perceiving. You would have no friends, but, right, but why? Right, and so therefore, right, so is there any, you are no longer occupying some specific place. Basically, all of reality is kind of contained within your mind, in which case you would basically approach to or be the same thing as God. Okay, fine. Also, do human beings really have seichel? No. Why not? Because we don't have God. No, human beings don't have Seichel at all. We have the all. Chinese version. We have the Chinese made in China plastic version. Because in order to perceive immateriality for what it is, what can you not be motivated by? Your ego, a preference for yourself. And since every human being is governed by a desire to prefer themselves, whether that self is their individual self or their self meaning their particular group, right? Whatever human beings are doing is an imitation of Seichel, something we're going to get to later in chapters 6 and 7. Mostly 6. Okay. However, godly souls, of which Jews do have one, they do have Seichel because a godly soul is not preoccupied with itself. And therefore, it actually can have real Seichel. So human beings, no Seichel. Imitation Seichel. Plastic made in China seichel. By the way, should you get your seichel sterile, your imitation seichel sterilized? Because apparently there's diseases in China. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, but we're talking about the godly soul, which has real seichel. Okay. Now, then the other group of factories are called midas. Okay. And how are midas different from seichel? They're about relationships. Relationship means that there has to be a distinct you relating to a distinct something else, right? Me. Right, that's what midos are. They're me. They are centered and focused on... Right, me and two. Right, yeah. Very good. <laughs> okay. Now, the thing that is interesting that we already know from talking about the spheres, but we're going to, we're going to get into is that what is the relationship between the seichel and the midos? 
They both exist in the soul, but what's the relationship between the two? Well, right now I've explained how they're opposing, but what else is true about them? One births the other. One births the other, right? Seichel, right? And that creates an interesting question. How does Seichel, right, which is all about perceiving materiality for what it truly is, which taken to its extreme dissolves any focus on yourself, give birth, give rise to Midas, which are all about your relationship, you as an individual distinct entity relating to someone, something else. Okay, now, we have to do a little more talking about the Midos, because we're talking about not just Midos in general, but the Midos of the godly soul. Now, do human beings have real Midos? Yes. Yes. They don't have real Seichel, but they do have real Midos. In fact, do animals have real Midos? Yes, they're different. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that is a very good question. Okay, I'm going to give you half of an answer now, and the other half, hopefully we'll get to today. The half of the answer is, who, say, who says that those midos are godly midos? In other words, godly midos arise from seichel, but you can have something which are not godly midos. Because of the definition of what seichel is, right? Seichel is perceiving immateriality for what it really is, in which case you don't occupy a privileged position. So a being who, who occupies a privileged position in their own mind can't really have true seichel. Mides mean how you genuinely feel, and therefore the, the bonds and barriers that that creates in your relationship with the world around you. Okay, higher functioning animals have that, such as, you know, dogs and dolphins and chimpanzees, right? Pigs. Um, human beings have that and apparently godly souls also have that but godly, the godly souls version works very differently in, that, in what sense that the seichel is the mother of the, of the midos so you can have real midos but not necessarily godly midos Well, it, it, this is not a prohibition. This is a description saying the godly midos. Oh, why is it that way? Because the godly because the godly midos are are a reconstruction of the spheros. And how do the spheros work? Okay, now you ask why did God make the spheros that way? That's already I don't know, right? But if if the if if your if your godly faculties are merely a reconstruction of the spheros, then however way God decided to relate to reality using the spheres, well, then that's going to set up the same thing for, right? And he said he, he, the godly soul is a child of God and is directly a reconstruction of that. But an animal is not. And a human being is like an interesting middle category. We're going to get back to that later. Okay. Um, to highlight this, there is a mitzvah in the Torah, um, which is to emulate God. Just as he is compassionate, so to you should be compassionate. Just as he is merciful, so too you should be merciful. Just as he is kind, so too you should be kind. Right? Okay. Now, there is a problem, which is that the mitzvahs, there are, how many mitzvahs are there? Anyone know? Six or ten. Wrong. What? So many. That's a good answer. No. Okay. The reason why it's wrong is because it, the question itself is too vague. By what count? There is a concept that there are 613 biblical mitzvahs, 
which are known as the countable mitzvahs. Now, if you go through a Chumash and you count every time Hashem tells the Jewish people to do something, it's more than 613. Because you have to know which ones count and which ones don't. So one of the rules by what makes a mitzvah count is that it has to tell you to do something concrete, specific, that is not included in other mitzvahs. Otherwise, it doesn't count as a separate mitzvah. Okay, so for example, there's a mitzvah to love your fellow Jew. Okay? Now, we're not going to go into the deeper way that's understood in Chassid. It's just a straightforward legal definition. If that's, is that one of the 613 mitzvahs? It is. But it, in order to be, it has to tell you to do something specific that's not included in the other mitzvahs. What is the specific thing that you're required to do? Yourself. What does that mean? That's very vague. That's not specific. Okay, so I'll tell you. Number one, say nice things about them. Aww. Yeah. Aren't you not supposed to that talk to people? No, that's only if you follow two things. You follow a very stringent view of the prohibition of Lashon Hara, mm-hmm. and you decide to ignore your common sense. But if you follow your common sense, then, and you follow a more lenient view of Lashon Hara, then as long as in your good judgment you're not, you're not saying anything which would lead to somebody being slandered or in any way, then saying good things about people is perfectly fine. In fact, the Rambam says it is a, it's a mitzvah. Okay. Um, it's one of those things, like anything in Torah, if you're overly stringent in one thing, you end up taking leniencies somewhere else. Right. It's like if you're overly stringent about fasting, you end up taking leniencies in the obligation to preserve your health. So I'm not saying you should be overtly lenient in Lashon Hara either, let's be clear. But if you take an overly stringent view and you don't use common sense, that would cause you to never say anything about anybody and then you would neglect to do the wonderful positive mitzvah of saying nice things about your fellow Jew. Another thing that you're supposed to do if you love your fellow Jew like yourself? No, that's a separate mitzvah. Tzedakah. What? That's a separate mitzvah. That's it. So the, you, you know like when you get something new, um, it's like really nice and you don't want like anything to happen, like a little scratch. You know what I'm talking like you guys and you don't want a little scratch or you know like, yeah, you give like, so there's a little, there's a kind of an extra care you treat your own possessions above and beyond, which is just above and beyond responsibility. It's a little, um, you know, going that extra mile. So when handling another Jew's possessions, even if what you're doing is perfectly valid and fine, but you should treat it with the same care that you treat it your own. So not being negligent, not being destructive, that those are separate mitzvahs, but going that extra mile of treating it like it's your own with that extra little care. So those are two examples of things that the mitzvah requires. Make it a separate mitzvah. Is a part of <sighs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. Okay, so there's a mitzvah to emulate Hashem, and that means you should be compassionate, just like he's compassionate. Now, seemingly, if you have mitzvahs already to be nice to people and be kind to people and not to steal, so then what is this extra mitzvah of emulating Hashem? And so one of the basic explanations is that it's one thing to be compassionate because you're just naturally compassionate. It's another thing to be compassionate because your seichel produced that compassion. It's one thing to be kind because you're naturally kind. It's another thing to be kind because your seichel produced the kindness. So what would it be to emulate Hashem? That just as He's kind, you should be kind. Is that your kindness should stem from and not from. Can you give an example? What? As opposed to the midos of the earth. People are naturally kind. People can be naturally compassionate. Can you give an example how that plays out differently? 
how that plays out differently, how that plays out differently, I will after we finish chapter three. Because uh-huh. that's what chapter three is all about. Uh-huh. Yes? Is it a bigger mitzvah to be kind to somebody when you don't necessarily like them versus being kind to somebody that you do like? Or being kind because you're naturally kind versus being kind because you feel like they're trying to like So that's a very good question to which I'm not going to answer. I will point you to chapter 15 of Tanya. Mm -hmm. I will point you to the Rambam's introduction to Pirkei Avos. I believe, I'm guessing now it's chapter 6, but it could be 5, it could be 7. It's not 8, I'm pretty sure, but I could be wrong. It's in the later, it's it's the latter chapters. Um, And one other place, so Tanya chapter 15, the latter, one of the latter chapters of the Rambam's introduction to Pirkei Avos, known as the 8 chapters. Um, and chapter 32 of Tanya. Oh, so those are places you can look that up. But it's not directly relevant to now, so I'm not going to talk about it. Yes? So the animals don't like the animals. We'll talk about the animals. So. Does yeah. It okay. Does it have seichel? It has plastic made in China version it's seichel. The same as the... Well, the animal soul is what makes you a human being. I know, but is that seichel the same as the godly? No. It's a totally different thing. Yeah. <laughs> The godly souls is not. Godly soul has real seichel. Like godly soul has real seichel because the godly soul preoccupied with its own well-being. No. Of the godly soul. And the seichel of the godly soul. And even though there are going to be similarities to what occurs in the animal soul and human beings in general, they're not the same thing. The seichel of the godly soul? Yes. No. Because the godly soul is not obsessed with me. me. Because it's not obsessed with me. It can have real seichel. Human beings are obsessed with me. Well, maybe they're obsessed with you. How how could someone who has real seichel still love and or fear God? That's what we're going to get to. That's what we're going to get to. Okay. But first we have to talk about the Midas. We have to actually read some Tanya today. The more, we, the more ground we cover, the more we'll be clear. Okay. Okay. So the seichel, which he translates here as intellect, and we already discussed why I feel uncomfortable using intellect as a translation, includes chachma, bina, and das, which we're going to explain later what they are. So I'm not going to talk about that. I'm just going to point out why we don't translate them is because they are proper nouns or technical terms. Which one? Technical, technical terms. Right. Now, if you're talking about the sphere of chachma, then it becomes a proper noun. Whilst midot, I love that word, whilst, are love of God, dread and awe of him, glorification of him, and so forth. So what do the midos all have in common? So, so what do they all have in common? They're all of God, right? So all, the midos of the godly soul are how do you feel about God. So here's a, here's a simple test to figure out if it's the mythos of the godly soul or not. Is it oriented towards God? If the answer is no, then it's not the mythos of the godly soul. Okay? In other words, let's use an easy example. Um, are cows capable of feeling compassion? It's a good yeah. answer. 
The answer is yes. How do I know? What makes me confident and you not confident? When you were Facebook vegan, I like that. Okay, um, yeah, but just because they act like they have compassion, I mean, I can make show you, I can show you an animated film, and it looks like the character is having compassion, but but that's just because we're simulating symptoms of compassion in human beings. How do we know that they actually feel compassion? Your brain studies also just correlate. What? I don't think so. The mothers and the kids have compassion. So the way I'm confident is because the Rambam says so. And I trust the Rambam that he knows what he's talking about. Okay. And since we're learning Torah, we're going to go with that. Right. But one could make an argument that just because you display signs of feel, having an emotion doesn't mean you actually feel that emotion. Right? Okay. So, cows can feel compassion. Can, foul, cows, can cows feel compassion... Um, for a person um, who's suffering, maybe, maybe, like I don't know, like I mean, if they can feel compassion, right? He does not quite specific on the issue. Well, let's think about it. You know, if 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 you have a connection with the cow, yeah, I mean, the cow, if the cow can, you know, sees that you're in pain, and maybe, 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 that's not a question. That's an interesting question, one of which I don't want to answer. Now let's move to the, can a, can, a, can, a, can a cow feel compassion for a person who's undergoing an existential crisis? No. Why not? So, but then they're having compassion towards you, just, you're just the basic fact you're having stress. This is what I want to get at, is that to a cow, to a cow, existential crises are not things that actually exist in their experience of reality. They, have no, they, can't, they can't feel anything towards them. By the way, that's not just true about cows, it's also true about... Children. Right, the same. What? Children. Debatable. Dogs. Dogs. In fact, the Rambam says this is a key difference between people and animals. Okay. Um, so, if you, so then we could say, okay, in what sense are you experiencing an emotion which is basically like an animal, what sense are you experiencing emotions that are uniquely human? You'd have to think about if your emotions are oriented towards things which are uniquely human, then you're experiencing a uniquely human kind of an emotion. So if you're feeling something about, um, say, the purpose of life, why you exist, that's a uniquely human kind of an amida. Whereas if you're feeling something that relates to just stress, discomfort, presence of food, acceptance in the social group, then your amida was basically the same as an animal's, an actual animal. Yeah. Are you willing to provide some of the context for Rambam talking about cows and compassion? Like, what's the whole, or more of like, what's why did you bring this up? <laughs> not right now. It'll get distracting. Okay. So, there's a lot of when you see things that look good and you feel drawn to them, you imagine what it would be like to eat them, that's not, you know, that's not a uniquely human experience. Okay? But, but, but feeling angst over whether you're truly fulfilling the purpose of your existence or whether your existence even has a purpose or this sense of fulfillment of knowing you're fulfilling your purpose, those are uniquely human kinds of emotions, human kinds of meters. No, I'm not talking about godly. I didn't mention the word godly at all. 
I'm just talking, one of the things that we'll do is we're going to use the analogy of human beings and animals to try and analogize that to the godly, but it's not the same thing. Now, the godly soul is only able to feel an emotion in reference to, in relation to, God. That's it. In other words, if you talk about the most exciting thing in the world, what's the godly soul's reaction to that? Exactly. What, well, what about God? Does this connect to God somehow? Like, where, where do we find God in that? And if you can't provide a satisfactory answer to the godly soul, what does it do? It doesn't care. It's disinterested. It tunes out. Yeah. So are there really three levels of Midot and Seichel? Yes. There are, well, there's the level of Midot and Seichel in which a human being functions basically like an animal. Right? These are things like um, when, you, when you feel like when you feel hungry and you start rummaging for food. Right? You're not going to an animal. Um, you know, things like that. Then there are things that are uniquely human. Okay? So the things that are uniquely human are things like morals, um, purpose, okay, stuff like that. And then there are things which are neither human nor animal, they're godly. But do the two, the lower two, that you, the first two you just said, exist in the animal soul, animal soul but only one in the godly? No, neither of them the godly. The godly no, souls... The, one, the, the, la, the third that you just said. Yes, yeah, only in the godly, right. So Nanju has the first two. Nanju has the first two. Now, even though the Tanya doesn't speak about Nanju, let's flesh this out a bit because it, it also helps us understand something about Jews. Are we saying that if you do have an emotion in relation to God, that's necessarily your godly soul? Mm-hmm. No. It doesn't work that way. Okay? So they're capable. They're, right. In fact, that's going to be a key point in, 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 in Tanya, is that the animal soul is not, it's not impossible for it to have emotions towards God. Especially since God is the creator and the source of life and the source of meaning and a bunch of other stuff which we describe God as, stuff which is very significant to the animal soul. Okay. So a better way of putting this, and this is my terminology, is that the godly soul is incapable of having, of having an a relationship with anyone other than God. Whereas the animal soul is incapable of having a relationship with anyone that doesn't have something to do with themselves. So you see, God could feature in the life of the animal soul. But pizza, at least not in and of itself, can't feature in the life of the godly soul. Or chocolate milkshakes. Or personal purpose and satisfaction with achieving one's goals. Yeah? Um, at what point do Um, they get it at the point of immersing into the mikvah, provided that they do the whole procedure of mikvah right. And um, then it makes them like everybody else. Every other Jew. Well, the growing inside at that point is the same. In other words, converting just puts that non-Jew at the same status as somebody who just had a bar mitzvah, a bas mitzvah. I've never seen anything on that. So I don't make stuff up. I mean, I do, but then I usually tell you ahead of time if I'm making it up. Okay. All right. So, now, the Alter Rebbe here mentions how many midas? Good. Does anyone have a differing view? Four. Okay. Yes. Um, the... 
We'll get to that later. I, I, I don't. We'll get to that later. Okay, three or four. So which one do you think it is? Is it three or is it four? What? It's four plus. How many does he mention? So forth does not count as mentioning. It's acknowledging there's more, but. Okay. <laughs> what? So that's the question. Are dread and awe separate? Okay, that's really the question. Okay, so basically like this. I'm going to teach it to you as if there's three, and then I'm going to teach it to you as if there's four, and you'll see that both are correct. Mm. Okay. The midas, all midas, come in one of three flavors. Okay. You're going to like my, my, my flavors. The flavors are called right, left, center. and center, or middle. Okay. <laughs> Now, any mida which is right flavored makes you feel more expansive. So let's just talk about it. What does it mean to feel more expansive? Would you like describe the actual feeling of feeling more expansive? Unbound. Free. Free. Connected. Yeah. Capable. Yeah. Energetic, yeah. So, any mida which has that kind of an experience associated with it, if you were to actually be experiencing the mida, really feel that mida, those are called right side midas. Unbound, exuberant, vibrant, connected, unrestricted. Couldn't those adjectives be like dangerous? Sure, they could be dangerous. Anything could be dangerous. Like if you want safety, you should like look for a different religion. <laughs> My response to anything in Judaism is a danger. The answer is most definitively yes. That's why you should use it wisely. <laughs> okay, but then there are left side midas. And what do left side midas make you feel? They make you feel constricted and small. Okay? The right side midas make you... Make you they, they make you feel like they give you a sense of attachment and belonging. Left side midas make you feel a sense of distance and remoteness. Okay? Now, then there's center midas or middle midas. What do they feel like? Balanced. No, they don't feel like balanced. While we're on the topic, I will now give you my little diatribe about my hatred of balance. I despise balance. Okay. Oh. <laughs> At least I'm consistent. Okay. So, this is balanced, yes? Now, can you take away the word balance and explain what we mean when we say balance? Describe what, is, what, what sense is this balance? What does that mean? What? No, no, you said something very good. That what? Equal forces on both sides. You're missing a word. Equal forces. Okay, but you're, you're missing an important word. Are these forces, are these forces in, in the same direction or opposite directions? Well, if you take, in fact, that there's, that there's, there's um, 
there's my finger here, which creates torque. So if this is pulling down, then by definition, the other side is going to have to go. And if this is pulling down, that side has to go. So given the presence of my finger, it takes what was originally one force pulling in one direction and turns it into two forces pulling in opposite, opposite directions. Now, why isn't it falling? Because those forces are equally. Now, what happens if I slightly change the one of the forces? Falls. So balance is where you have two things. And the way you create um, the appearance, emphasis on the word, the appearance of stability is making sure that no, no one is stronger than the other. Okay? In physics, that's called an unstable equilibrium. In real life, okay, um, that's what causes people to snap. When you have a lot of different things in your life and you carefully made sure that no, each one is not pulling stronger than the other ones so you can have all of them, and then you know your tire goes flat, what happens? Right, not just the tire goes poof, but you go poof. Okay, so chsidis does not view balance as a good thing. Balance is a sign of duality. It's a sign of of of, of things in conflict, and all that's happened is that that conflict is being muted by no one side having the upper hand. It's like a game of tug of war where no one's moving. What about the? I don't know. I forgot who says this, but like to always take the middle road. That's the Rambam. Rambam yes. So, you know what the Rambam says by always, what he means by always taking the middle road? Nope. He means this. He means if you are holding something in the middle, then you can deploy whichever end you need to as you need to. You're not particularly bound to one side or the other. He says you should not be predisposed to being stingy because you won't be able to give your money when you need to. But you shouldn't be predisposed to being generous because then you're going to give away too much money. You should be predisposed to which one? Neither, hence the whole emulating God thing. Okay. You do whatever is appropriate as is appropriate, but you are not biased one way or the other. That's what he means by middle. Especially if you go more into some of the things he says in Pitgabas about it. Now, if I hold this like this, right, I have total control over it, right? I'm not bound by either of them. So there's a concept of things being integrated, that the different parts are, instead of pulling in conflicting directions, they are pulling in the same direction, right? So let me give you an example in real life. Do you think there should be a balance between um, a husband and wife in terms of how decisions are made? Think about that very carefully, what that would mean if a balance. Well, what would it mean if there's a balance between them? If we took the word concept balance very seriously. It's like you make three decisions and I get to make three decisions. Right, and my decisions are made based entirely on what I want with no regard to you want, and you decision, right, but Right, because, because, because nobody gets to make more decisions than the other, and we can, we can wait decisions if we need you to make it fair, right? So one serious decision counts for three minor decisions or whatever you want, right? Yeah. The only time that I know of in Judaism where balance is discussed is when God is weighing your sins against your mitzvahs in Judgment Day. And if they're balanced, then you're called a bainani, not the bainani of Tanya, which means he gives you 10 days to do tshuva and correct the situation before sentencing you to death. But other than that, balance is not a great thing. It's real. It's true stuff. Okay? Actually, how should decision-making happen in a marriage? Together. Now, you could have together in such a way where the decision-making is primarily focused in one spouse and the other spouse is providing active input and the other spouse is taking that seriously, but one spouse defers the other. It could be 
um, a collaborative discussion. It could be that one spouse knows what the other wants to take. There's there are many ways of together, right? Together is not uniform. But what it means is that it's not two people pulling in opposite directions, and the reason why we're not having an allot war is nobody has more power than the other. Okay? Yeah. So, chassidus is anti-compromise. Because it, it, because it, it creates conflict. Chassidus would say it's like this, okay. If we have a conflict, we shouldn't compromise. We should figure out um, what's known as win-win situations. We have to, that's the, that's the, the art of having a relationship, is figuring out how to make a win-win out of everything. Now that often means going deeper. It sometimes means not compromising what the other person wants, but realizing that there's more to what you care about than your initial agenda. Like, I want pizza, and you don't want pizza. Okay, but now, forget you, but about me. Is my desire for pizza, how important is that to me, and what am I willing to call, right? So it's not about me compromising with you, it's about me going, finding a deeper point of myself, and if you go deep enough, and two people are generally interested in making a relationship work, whether it's a marriage, parenting, friendship, doesn't matter, you eventually have to come to a place where nobody's compromising or sacrificing for the other, but it's something that both people are perfectly happy with, as opposed to I'll give a little, you give a little, and then we'll both be somewhat miserable. Okay. Right. This is the difference between, like, um, this is the difference between real arbitration um, and like, a, a, and having just someone make a judgment. A real arbitration really comes to a point where both sides walk out happy that they feel like what really mattered to them was met. Which is not an easy thing to do. This goes back to something we talked about a few months ago, that in, as Chassidus teaches, that the, if there's, in, in holiness, there's no such thing as power. No one's exerting power over everyone else. So again, I might see that one is doing more of the deciding than the other, but that's because they both have a sense that that's what works best for them. But if it's really balancing, then you're saying that there's inherently a conflict, and instead of like one destroying the other, we're just gonna like make sure nobody's more powerful than the other person. What's the difference between conflict and tension? Tension means that tension means that you have what to work with, and conflict means that fundamentally things are, in, are unreconcilable. So you have to compromise. You have to sacrifice. You have to give stuff up. So the fact that there's tension doesn't mean that there are two things in conflict. No. If you just th- if you think about just a simple thing, like how does breathing work? diaphragm tenses and then it relaxes and then it tenses and then it relaxes. Does that there mean there's a conflict going on? No. It means that now you're able to have a rhythm. Right? Right. Surfing means that it can only happen if there are waves. Waves happen because of differences in, in the pressure in, 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 the, in the water and the current. Right? As if there's, these kinds of differentials are not, if they're, they're part of some unified whole pulling all towards the same thing, that's not a problem. So the third thing is where things are, what's called in Hebrew, behiskalulos, which in English, the be- it's called in Hebrew, behiskalulos. It comes from the word kol, which means all. And the best English translation I've heard of is integrated, where you have two different things working together as one. Okay, so when you are, so now let's think about this. So it gives this, this glorification of God. What is glorification? No, like what? What is that? What is that like? Has you ever? Have you ever? Someone ever come back from a class and told you how amazing the class was? Mm-hmm. Okay, so 
Now, if the class was more or less exactly on their level and they were able to follow the teacher 100% and everything the teacher said made perfect sense and was so intuitive, would they be like, wow, it was the most amazing class ever? No. no. So it was clearly beyond them and there were things that they didn't grow. Right? On the other hand, if they felt just small and insignificant relative to what was going on in the class and didn't feel it resonated with them and connected to them, would they be like, wow, that was an amazing class? So which one is it? Or is it more of an expansive or more constricted? Or is it elements of both? It has elements of both. And what you'll notice here is that it's instead of talking so much about so much about um, its unique relationship with them, it's more about how they were able to appreciate how wonderful and amazing something is. So there are kind of emotions which are about connecting and feeling expansive because you're, you're feeling a, a sense of belonging and attachment and desire. Those are the right side emotions. And then the left side emotions where you feel pushed away, withdrawn, subdued, surrender, limited, constrained relative to something else. And there's something else that in itself is just, it's really amazing. It's really awesome. Kind of like the experience when you go stargazing for the first time. Have you ever done that? Mm -hmm. Anyone ever gone yeah. stargazing? Right? It's like the sense of expansiveness and smallness but they work together, okay? So there's kind of emotions, and there's a whole set of emotions that work like, along those lines, okay? Now, like. what? Like. Um, wonder, empathy, compassion, truth. Truth is an emotion? A sense of truth, it's like a sense of, a sense of th that this is true, this, this really matters, this is significant. Not true like it happens to be the case, but like this is, this, is, this is worth, for lack of words, this is worth dying for, this is worth living for. Like how does that, when you have a sense of something that's that significant, that important, compassion for another person in pain, right? On the one hand, you feel very connected, you can be part of it. On the other hand, there's also the sense of, you know, it, this is there, it's not me. There's a, that's why, um, for instance, when you go to a shiva house, what is the proper etiquette in a shiva house? Should you start talking? No, no right? Because it's their morning, and they, you have to be invited into their morning, not like going off and... Okay, so there's these broad distinctions. Now, and so the, 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 the ideal example and the one that we use for all the right side emotions is love. So we need to define what love means according to Hasidus. That's the right side. That's the right side. Although not all right side ones are love, but love is like the most, um, I don't know, the purest, the most idealistic. What love means, love means is a feeling of being close to, being attached to, being connected to someone or something that urges you, that propels you to be even closer. Now, what happens when you get closer? you need to get even closer. So the analogy for love is like trying to put out a fire by throwing gasoline on it. What happens? Right, okay. So the right side emotions are, I feel connected to this and that feeling connection makes me feel the needing to be even more connected. And as I become more connected, whatever way is more connected, I mean, more connected to your spouse, it's not the same as more connected to your children, it's not the same as more connected to an idea, right? But as I become more connected, what happens? I feel the need to be even more connected. So what would happen if you just let love run without stopping it? 
You would burn down the world. You would become obsessed. Yeah. Which is, in, right. And, 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 right, you would become crazy. That's what would happen. Then you go, go, go. If you love an idea and you don't let anything else get in the way of that, yeah. What? There's something that can happen to a person where they start to realize that they can never be connected more than they already are. And there's a, that's where there's a tragic element to love, which I think is what you're getting at. You start to realize there is nothing for you to do to get closer. It's beyond your ability. No. No. That's where people like fall in, and sink into depression because the thing that they live their life for is unattainable. Right. It makes a lot of good novels. Do you think that's why people cheat though? What? Do you think that's why people cheat though? Because they're like, oh, if I can't get my life full, I should set No. No, but I don't want to talk about that. Okay, then you have, what? So what would love of God be? Let's go back to the title. What would love of God be? That how do you feel? You, you feel connected to Hashem. And that feeling of connection makes you feel the need to be? Even closer. And as you get closer, you feel the need to be even? And as you get closer, you feel the need to be even? Yeah, that's what love of Hashem is. That's what it means. Right? That's what it means. Like, you, I, mean, you, I mean, if you think about it, let's say if you love somebody, right? But on a very basic level, if you love somebody, so you feel a certain closeness, you feel a certain bond, you feel a certain belonging to them, right? But you're like, okay, I love them, that's nice. Like, you start, like, well, your mind starts moving, like, how can I get closer? How can I spend more time with them? How can I be more open with them? How can they become more open with me? Right? How can we get the, our, the issues that we disagree upon not to get in the way, right? And then as those things are achieved, you're not like, oh, well, now that's wonderful. You're like, you want more. No. That's love. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So, to my knowledge, and I could be wrong about this, is that the original phrase is kiruv rechokin, to draw those who are far. And the Rebbe objected describing Jews as far. Um, and, and it's still used very much in that sense. Um, there's a very famous video of somebody speaking to the Rebbe that he's, he, he, he's very bothered. His, his, his brother or sister, I don't remember, um, they're not religious, and they say to the Rebbe, they have no connection to Judaism whatsoever. And the Rebbe is visibly upset by this. And, 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 and the Rebbe says, of course they have a connection. They're a child of, of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and a daughter of, of Sarif, Baruch, and Leih. Of course they have a connection. And when they see how much they're, 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 the sibling, they're, they're the brother, and then he turns to the man's wife, and, and the sister-in-law care about them and appreciate them, it'll draw out that connection even more. So... It has to do with kind of the lineage of that idea that there's the in-group and there's the out-group. We're trying to draw people from the out-group into the in-group. That's why they're objected to. So it wasn't the closeness in the word kiruv, but the implication that, not the implication, it was actually said explicitly, kiruv v'choykim, drawing people away who are far. Mm -hmm. um, had it originally been viewed differently, in part of a phrase of kiruv kreivim, I 
maybe the Rebbe would have, you know. The Rebbe is, one of the things that's true about the Rebbe is the Rebbe is very conscious of how slogans feature in the minds of society at large. And was very careful that certain slogans be used and certain slogans not be used because they create certain images in our minds of what we're doing and what life's about. That, that, to my knowledge, that's why the Rebbe posed it. Okay. Okay. Um, this doesn't seem to be like the love of like a child to a parent. Well, I mean, what you'll realize is that, that, that you're not going to find anything that's even remotely like this that involves um, things, possession of things, as a general rule. Very few people, in a sense, really love things, right? Because what happens... Right. Now, there are exceptions to this, right? You have, like, misers. I don't want to use... I don't, I don't want to... I, I don't want to talk about addictions for two reasons. One is that it's a very catch-all term, um, and it's not even people use it in many different ways in English. And there isn't a tradition in Chassidus of any specific term that would directly correspond to it. So since we're learning Chassidus, I don't want to talk about it. Um, no, but like there, there are people that you know they love money, but they're they're pretty rare. I'm not saying it's impossible to love things, but like someone who loves money. What does their life look like? Sad. Rip, their all life is all about getting money, and the more money they have, the more they want, the more they want and the money is a means to something else. No. It's, the money is just a means to more money, and it's about having the money, right? Yeah, but that, that's very, <laughs> very few people. Most people don't love money. It's just not true. Most of us love things, and even the things we don't love, right, in this sense. Yeah. question. That's what the whole book's about. Okay, fine. Glorification. What's glorification? That something, so something, something both makes you feel both connected and distant at the same time. So glorification of God. So what happens when a person realizes that Say, despite how infinite God is, God can connects to us in a simple mitzvah. So, what does that kind of a feeling have? It has both a sense of our smallness and our remoteness and our disconnect, and also has a sense of being connected. Also, a sense of being attached and belonging. Okay. Then notice what I skipped was um, dread and awe. That would be integrated. That would be integrated, yeah. So that would be glorification. Dread and awe. By the way, people glorify themselves all the time. You ever hear people talk about how awesome they are? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are they trying to get you to feel? How awesome, how awesome you are. Yeah. And so that makes you feel, on the one hand, connected to them and attached. On the other hand, you feel... Well, it depends whether... It depends, it, it depends how they're doing it. Many people, I mean, many people do it in a very charismatic way. I mean, there's not a shortage of people who are very charismatic about the way they glorify themselves and people really adore them. And that's right. If you do it in a very overt, sleazy way, people get turned off. <laughs> yeah, cults of personality. Yeah, people, some people are just very good at, 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 at glorifying themselves and getting others to feel like nobody is as amazing as that person and I have to be around them all the time. So it's like completely beyond you and you have to be connected. Yeah. Charismatic people are good there, yeah? Charismatic people sometimes run for office. 
Okay. Yeah. So the integrated are this central? Yeah, the central ones. Yeah. So that's this glorification. Okay, dread and awe. So here we're going to move to the Hebrew. Okay, so if you look in the Hebrew, okay, it has the word pachad and the word yira. I am going to describe them and I'm not going to worry about English words. Now, people have this issue with the word fear. Like, it's not love and fear of God, it's love and awe of God. Um, we're going to talk about the Hebrew, just to avoid this issue. We're going to first talk about pachad. Okay? Have you ever felt small because something was more than you? Now, on the very basic level, more powerful than you, right? Like you're on the subway, it's late at night, and some dangerous looking guy with a baseball bat starts glaring at you, right? That's more in the sense of powerful, right? Okay? But it could be more in the sense of important, more in the sense of intelligence. It doesn't really matter more in what sense. But some sense, they are more, much more than you. And where are they? They're near you. And so all of a sudden, you become very acutely aware of how small you are. Okay? How does that feel? And don't want to say good or bad. How does that describe the feeling? Describe what that's like. What? Scary. Dread, yeah, that's your dread, right? That there's this, there's the, there's a, there's a, there's a tightening inside, right? There's a sense of incapacity, right? The mind becomes constricted, yeah. Okay. By the way, this even happens in very simple day, everyday things. Like, what happens if you walk into the bathroom when someone else is there, not expecting them? Oh no. Same thing, right? Because all <laughs> of a sudden, in terms of right to be there, they have a much more right to be there than you do, and so you feel. An instant sense of, right. yeah, right? You get what I'm saying? Like, so there's a whole range of feelings in different scenarios, but, but the fact that something that is much more than me in some sense is right here, right present, and then I feel in contrast my relative smallness in a very visceral and intense way that literally constricts the person, even physically. Like your, your blood vessels constrict, you get tight, you get tense, your mind, right? You know, in very, if this gets extreme, you would even go into panic, right? Okay? You might literally fall down convulsing, unable to move. Right? Um, there was the Maggid of Mizrich, who was the successor to the Baal Shem Tov and leading the Hasidic movement, had 120 disciples. Do you know why he had 120 disciples? Because that's the only ones he wanted. Many people wanted to be his disciples. And many of them were rejected. They were, they were made... Um, I don't know what the word is, but they, were, they, were, they, they, would, they, would, they would hang out. And they, but, but the disciples were people that he took personal responsibility for educating as um, um, perpetuating the leadership of the Hasidic movement. There were other people that um, he wanted, that they wanted to participate, and they would hang around. They would do things like clean the shul and light the fires and, and hope to hear something. And there's actually a very famous story of the Alter Rebbe about three of these uh, non-disciples having a febrengen about what made Avram so special. But that's not for today's story for another time. So one of the people who wanted to be a disciple of the Magad of Mizrich had a very distinguished lineage. Um, the son of a very famous rabbi named the Bach, and the Magad did not want to accept him. Now, the, one of the Magad's disciples was a man named Rebzusha, 
known as Abzusha Vanapola. Now, Abzusha had a reputation for not being the most brilliant Torah scholar, which part of that was a show. I mean, relative to the other students of the Magad, he wasn't the most brilliant, but he was still pretty brilliant. But, and he, he, he came off as a, he would come off as a very simple, um, almost sometimes incredibly naive person. And so this person said, you have this Zusha as your disciple. Do you know what my lineage is? Do you know how, my, my, you know how important, how great a person I am? How can you take Zusha and not take me as a disciple? So the Magid said that if you would experience one little bit of, of the dread of Hashem that Zusha feels just in a regular Tuesday afternoon, um, you would not be able to, to contain yourself. Even your prestigious ancestor would be able to contain himself. And this person says, ah, yeah, right. And so I don't believe you. So Magid said, okay, well, I'll, I'll let you have that experience. And the person proceeded to convulse on the floor and lost control of his bowels. That's that. Rebzusha walked around every day with a sense of how God is so much greater than us in whatever sense of greater, and he's right here and right now that if a regular person would experience that, they would, be, have a, they would have a, 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 a psychic break, a psychological breakdown. And he walked around as if, like, you know, he was a normal person. He was able to contain that experience. Okay, so that's extreme versions of dread. Okay. You know what he regrets me then? That would be experiencing your smallness. Your smallness, but you're experiencing your smallness relative to who and where is God present right here right now and there's an immediacy um, it depends what you mean by inferiority it depends what you mean by inferiority yeah so it means like because like sometimes the, the, like if it's just a mind game like I feel inferior to someone else and it's about my ego that's not what this is because that's the feeling of you relative to yourself like you have some sort of ideal that you want to be and you're not living up to it. So in that kind of inferiority, no. Um, okay, What's, then this other term, Yira, is where it's distant, where, the, where the, thing, the one who's greater than you is remote and far away. And therefore, it doesn't have that same intensity. Okay? Um, there's a sense of... of so, so you have that smallness, but... It's calmer. So to use the, my bathroom example, what keeps you from opening the door when someone else is using the bathroom? Yira. Let's assume the bathroom is open, right? Yira. That's what keeps you from opening the door. How do you feel if you do nonetheless open the door and they're there? Pachat. So the difference is that Yira involves a certain awareness of what's remote from you. Whereas Pachat is how you experience that very same thing when it's immediate. Okay? So... For instance, the fact that you would never think to disagree with someone who's smarter than yourself, that would be? Okay, the fact that when you're in front of them, you can't even get the question out? Okay, so those the same or those different? They're different in one sense, but they're the same in another sense. Year is where you have awareness of the greatness of something else or someone else and your relative smallness, but where is the someone or something else? It's remote. Whereas, right, well, it depends. I mean, you could have an awareness of God is great, but he's remote from you. Or you could have awareness of God is great and God is close. close. And you're going to, that, that, 
that left side experience becomes a very different side, left hand experience. Is it, is it a more of an inhibiting kind of an experience? That's yira. Or is it more something that causes your innards to go, which is more pachat? That's right. So in one sense you could say it's one thing, and in another sense you could say it's two. So it's feeling small regardless, just whether right. it's like right in front of you or Exactly. Different. But the way you experience it is radically different. Yeah, you could think of it that way. Right. So if you have Yira of Hashem, and we're using now, sometimes you be careful that we're not using the terms this specifically. So sometimes we use the term Yira and we're not contrasting against Pachat. But if we were to say you have Yira of Hashem as opposed to Pachat of Hashem, where do you feel like Hashem is? Far, far. far. So what word would you use when you're davening and addressing Hashem if you have Yira? You would use He, not you. Right? You ever know that in the Siddur we switch around? You, He, you, He, you, He. In Brachas. Because can you be aware of Hashem is remote and distant from you? And you can be aware of Hashem is right there in front of you. So when we say, that when we speak about he who creates the world, well, I can't create the world. That's pretty like beyond me, right? So the feeling of he who creates the world and I can't create the world is Yira. But then all of a sudden I turn around like, you created the world, that would become Pacha. Those are the difference. That's the difference there. Yeah. Because, like when you're talking to an actual person, one of the things that's very helpful to do um, is to realize that the other person is distant from you, even as you're talking to them. I'll explain to you what I mean. Um, let's say you're having an argument with someone, and they say something that makes you very defensive. What's your instinctual reaction is to either like walk away, shut it down, counterattack, depending on your particular personality, what you ate for breakfast. Okay. But what if you realize, wait, 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 wait a minute. There's the you, the person I'm talking to as I experience you, but then there's like more going on in that person's head that I'm not aware of. Right? There's a where they're coming from and why they said that, that is not part of my experience. And in that sense, it's not you, it's, depending on whether it's a male or a woman, it's, it's her. What is she thinking or what is he thinking? Because I'm not actually privy to that deeper dimension in them. And once you start engaging that, they become a dip, deeper, richer person, and then you can bring that and bring that back into the one you're talking to. So now the one you're talking to has more depth to them. And and once you do that, what happens to the feelings of defensiveness? They go away. So even when we talk to people who are flesh and blood right in front of us, we do have to do this back and forth. If all you do is talk to people, relate to people in second person, you reduce the person merely to what you experience of them. And all the more so with God. So when you're talking to God, there are stages of which you have to become aware that, there, of, that there's more to God beyond what you experience. Then you talk about God, notice about God, and then you realize that that same God is present with you, so then you start talking again to God. That's why, that's why we shift. Yeah. Strange for me to then say to Juliana, now what is Juliana actually thinking right now? 
if you said it with your words, but you do say that with your mind. But remember yes, the sit, but the, I, I realize, I realize that, which is why those things are not speaking to her. They're speaking about her. And, and, and uh, the, the Siddur is, 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 a, is a lot of the Siddur is a, is, is a guide to what you should think about rather than things that you speak to Hashem. There are other explanations. I'm saying in the context of this discussion we're talking about, that's how that shift in, in first and third, in second and third person is explained. There are other explanations. So potentially by one explanation, not everything I'm saying is obvious. I'm saying to Hashem. Clearly, yeah. Man, much of it you're... About Hashem. Yeah, in fact, sometimes in davening you're directly addressing yourself. Like Shema Yisrael is a direct... You're, direct talking, you're talking to yourself. You're not talking to Hashem at all. You're talking to yourself about Hashem. Mm-hmm. Is there a sense of like we're maybe wasting a lot of time by, by including that in the same experience? Like maybe I should mumble to myself about Hashem separately and then when I'm ready to talk to Hashem and talk to them... Then... That's exactly what we do. That's why we, we, we do all that other stuff. Then we stand up and take three steps back and three steps forward and then directly talk to Hashem. Nothing else is talking to Hashem? All the Baruch Hashem? So there's a difference between the level of His presence you're supposed to be aware of between those two things, which I'm not going to get into right now. Okay. Yeah. Does dread or fear correspond to a specific sphere? Yes. So, so... The, so the spheres that they would correspond to is love would correspond to chesed. He's going to say at the end of the chapter. Dread and ar, or yira and, 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 and pachad, they correspond to gevura. And the glorification, the spirals, corresponds to tiferes. Now, he says the so, and so forth because there are actually other um, midos. There are other, there are other experiences of the godly soul. But they because they fit into this broad grouping of three, he doesn't mention them explicitly. I will give you a brief overview of them. Okay, so there's seven, and we have three, three categories, right? The right, the left, and the middle. Okay, so the right one, the other right one is not called love, it's called netzach. Okay? Um, and a good way of describing what netzach is um, is that you are not going to let yourself get in your own way. I don't know, that's why it's called it. You have to ask the people who named it. Okay. Netzach literally means victory, but it doesn't really matter. Netzach is the fact that I am not going to let myself get in my own way. In other words, my sense of being connected will be able to overcome what? What does it need to overcome? My whatever within me pulls in the opposite direction. So have you ever had words stuck in your throat that you wanted to say but didn't say? Mm-hmm. So what were you lacking in? Mm-hmm. Netzach. Because if you had Netzach, would you let the fact that it was uncomfortable to say them stop you from saying them? No. no. Okay. So not, letting what get in not letting yourself get in your own way. Because there's so much superficial stuff in you that gets important with what you really love and what you're really attached to. Okay. So in the case of having netzach, what would that mean? What don't you let get in your way of your connection with Hashem? Yourself. Because there's so much of you that gets in the way of that. Okay? Then there's another one, which would be the left side, which is called hoid. Okay? So netzach would be right Netzach would be like on the right side. So it's hoid. Yeah. You can look there on this chart. I'm not looking at that pulse well, the, the, the names are correct. It's just somewhat artificial, the lines that are there. Okay, so, so, Hoyd is, is the sense 
um, that um, you you have to take someone else's limitations into account. So the fact that like I don't answer certain questions is not always because I don't want to answer them, but because if I do answer them, what will happen? The class will go cast will astray. go astray, as if it's not goes astray enough, right? But it'll go way off topic, right? Now that doesn't mean it's less enjoyable for me, but like, do people have the ability to let it go that far astray and cover the material at the same time? No. Or why is it that we shelter our children from being aware of certain things when they're young? Because we think those things aren't important to know. I don't want them to. Why don't we want them to know? They're not ready, not capable, right? So acknowledging someone else's limitations and connecting to them, that's hope, yeah. So, for instance, um, what would be having hold relative to Hashem? No, but I'm not talking about his hold to us. I'm talking about our godly soul's hold. Yeah, like, like, yeah, that the fact that like, well, so so you have to be careful. It's not that I don't like. Okay. Do. Is anyone ever has anyone ever, has anyone ever asked you um, why Jews do certain things? Why intelligent? Okay, and you don't know the answer. Mm-hmm. How does that make you feel? Like you should know more. Okay, but on a certain level, like at the end of the day, Judaism comes from God, and how much can you really know about God? So really, the most honest and the most honest answer, and the most and the answer, certain sense, which would connect you the most to God, would acknowledge it fundamentally. I don't know. That's like not part of this relationship on a fundamental level. Because we're after all talking about the relationship between an infinite God and a finite human being. So like, why is my understanding a limiting factor here? Why is that a necessary factor? So that ability to realize like, what are the parameters of this relationship and respect that? So with a child, you don't like tell them stuff they can't understand, right? But what if you're talking to an adult, right? And someone tells you, this is not even thinking about God. Like, Like someone tells you something's really important to them. Yeah. Is it appropriate to ask a follow-up question of why? No. Yes, or sometimes. 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 Which way of relating to them gives you a sense of when it's appropriate and will strengthen the relationship, and when it's actually will do the opposite. That means this is a boundary you shouldn't cross. That's not constructive. Doesn't help you connect if you cross that boundary. That's hope. If you if you have a sense like this is not this is not my place to pry. It's not going to help the relationship grow. It's going to create distance between us. You know, respect that distance. Not because I feel inhibited, but because it just doesn't work. If I keep prying into eventually you're just going to shut me out. So I have to figure out at what point I should stop asking follow-up questions. Yeah. Because you are connected to something. And that connection becomes the thing that determines everything else. So you feel it's a different kind of an expansiveness. What you'll notice is that Netzach and Hod have less of the richness of emotional experience, which is why the Alter doesn't mention them explicitly. They're called offshoots or branches, as he says later on. And then you have Yisod. Um, and Yisod is um, that sense of being connected to somebody. You guys know the story of Rus? So Rus's, grand, Rus's mother-in-law wanted to leave and leave her two daughter-in-laws behind and one of them left, was willing to stay behind and the other one, Rus, 
What did she say to her mother-in-law? Where you go, I go, your God and my God. So much better. Yeah, yeah, it was a little bit more. Where you sleep, I sleep. Where you die. Yeah. It's pretty intense, right? So what is it like to feel like that about, some, about someone or something? What? Well, any it would, okay, but it, it could be. But but what what is that? What is that? What is that? I'll give. So I'm giving you an example of your, of of of, of your soul. There was a, a a teacher in the times of the Gemara named Rabbi Freida. Or Preda. It's not clear. There's no vowels. So I've heard two different explanations, or two different readings of it. Anyway, he had a student who was, shall we say, not the brightest student. And he had to have the lesson explained to him 400 times. Aye. Otherwise, he would get confused. And Rabbi Freda, Rabbi Freda would explain the lesson 400 times very slowly. One day, Rabbi Freda was invited to a, a, a suda, of a mitzvah, a bar mitzvah, a wedding, something like that. And uh, after the lesson, so he taught the student 400 times, very patiently. And afterwards, he saw the student to get it. And he asked the student, why did you get it? He said, I was afraid you were going to leave. So I was nervous. So I wasn't paying full attention. So Rabbi Freda proceeded to explain to him another 400 times. What does that mean? Where you are, I am. Okay? This, this is a sense of belonging and identity and loyalty. And it doesn't, it's, it's in a certain sense, it, it, it doesn't have any of the intensity of love or, or glorification. It's just a simple fact that like you're anchored to someone or something and if they move around, then what happens? Isn't it the first part of love? Kind of? Like that feeling of attachment? The order in which they happen, I'm not getting into I'm just describing the differences. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and the last one is Malchus. Okay. You so does that last the one I just spoke about, that sense of attachment. It's center. Because like, it doesn't, it doesn't it, if you notice, it doesn't really fit into either of those things. The last one is Malchus. And Malchus is the ability to put things in terms that the other person can relate to. To be on someone else's terms. Like actually on someone else's terms. Like the Yeah. So for instance, what is necessary, in order to speak, what is necessary is to know which words will actually convey your meaning, not to you, but to your audience. You notice sometimes I tell you like I don't want to get hung up on the meaning of a word. Sometimes I do. Okay, why sometimes do I not want to get hung up on the meaning of the word? Right, because as long as you know what I mean, I don't care which words we use. Right now, sometimes I don't want to get hung up on the meaning of a word because the word is hiding a concept, and we're using the concept sloppily, so it's against important. But at the end of the day, the words you use have to convey your meaning to the other person. And if the word that I think really captures my intent does not convey it to you at all, and I'm incapable of switching my vocabulary, then I'm lacking in some way of connecting, some way of, right, of actually really embodying the mind of another person to, or another being to connect to them. So, um, what would this be in relationship to God? Yeah. What? Okay. Does God have, have certain ways he wants you to be present in his world? Yeah. Those are codified in a book known as Shulchan Aruch. The sense that you really ought to do what it says in Shulchan Aruch. Like really? Because if you're in God's world, you should play by his rules. What's that called? 
Malchus. Okay. But the Tanya is going to focus primarily on the, the, these, the ones he mentions because those are kind of the prime examples of the emotional of the Midas. And the other ones are considered options. Yes? So we just need Tiferet glory. Yes. Or it's glory as an, as an example of, uh, of the attribute of Tiferet. Also, I mentioned a few other things. It's also center, but it's different in the sense that it's 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 it can be it can be connected and integrated. With the other ones, I don't want to get into all that. Okay, but the point there that he's making is that these feelings are all in terms of there's so a godly soul in terms of it. So the godly soul can feel like it's attached to Hashem and wants to be closer and getting closer means it needs to be closer. It can feel like Hashem is totally beyond, whatever sense of beyond, and that in a way of a distant beyond or an imminent present beyond called in Hebrew, yir or pachad, fear or dread, awe or dread. It can the sense of, of this wonder, this glorification, how Hashem is so incredible that I feel connected and overjoyed and yet small at the same time. And then things that branch off of that, such as the sense that I can't let anything get in the way of my connection to Hashem called Netzach. I have to, I have to respect the things that will damage that connection, even if they're outside of me, even if they're the things that I haven't set. I have to be anchored to Hashem and wherever He goes, I have to follow. Wherever He's present, I have to be there. Wherever He isn't, I shouldn't show up. And the sense that I should actually exist in his world on his terms, which is known as Malchus. Those are the kinds of emotional experiences the godly soul can have. That's it. Nothing else. Okay? And the point here is, is that all those experiences, they arise not automatically, not independently, but as a result of the godly soul using its, what? Seichel. And that's what we have to understand. How does that work? Because we want to harness that. We want to use it effectively. Yeah? If the animal soul's needle are not prone to, but capable of thinking about topics related to God, mm-hmm. how do we know that we are just not ignoring our sacral and just using our animal needle to relate to God? Like, what's the difference? When you finish chapter 3, it will be very clear to you. Yes. But we didn't turn the page today. But we're close, right? right? We did two lines. So. All right, I will see you tomorrow.